And welcome, everybody, to another wonderful adventure through the world of sports. Old Fart Sports, I'm Kevin Herbst. We'll be joined in a little bit by my colleagues, Parker Huffman, also known as P. Huff, and Rory Neunhausen, also known as Roar Dog. So before we do that, however, we're going to be talking to a very special guest, George Castle. And just a little uh, a bit about George. He's been an author of 21 sports books. 46-year journalist and a former talk show host, so he's definitely going to have a little fun with us. And what we are going to do is we're going to review the 1969 Chicago Cubs and what happened to them. I think George is maybe still having a little bit of issue with that, but we'll talk to him about not only what happened to the Chicago Cubs, how the city got through it, and how George has uh, well held himself together Eh, a couple weeks since it's happened. Okay, it's been a long time. So we're going to go out to the phone lines and we're going to talk to uh, George Castle, who's talking to us from his lovely home with his beautiful bride in Chicago, Illinois. So, uh, um, George, and George, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little about the history of yourself and how many books you've written and, you know, all the other things that you've done. You almost sound like you've been around things for a week or two now. Um, well, if you're the, uh, the, the old farté, mm-hmm. I'm the older farté. <laughs> and, um, so I remember clearly things happening in the year 1960. I remember walking down Broadway Avenue in Chicago. Yes, there's a Broadway, but no nightclubs in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the thermometer on a September 6th, uh, thing flashed 100 degrees. Holy smokes. And I'm five years old. So I'm, I'm remembering things from 1960, and uh, we were joking that our kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Hook, was the wife was actually the wife of Captain Hook, the <laughs> villain on Peter Pan with Mary Mark. Oh my goodness, that does take me back too. So, uh, speaking of taking us back, I want you to take us back into uh, the Windy City and tell us about the 1969 Chicago Cubs. It is the most beloved second-place team that collapsed. Uh, you might say that the 64 Phillies were extremely reviled for their collapse, but the 69 Cubs won for losing. What it was was Cub fans' first adventure in the modern era to first place, what the joys and exhilaration of first place was like. Uh, what they didn't realize was what had to be done to stay in first place for a full six months and what uh, the organization uh, beneath them, out of sight of the media at the time, uh, a very understaffed, uh, under-financed organization by the richest owner in baseball, the gum magnet uh, Phil Wrigley ran the Wrigley Gum Company, and everybody chewed Wrigley gum, five mm-hmm. cents a pack, juicy fruit, fruit or experiment. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Unfortunately, all the attention was on the controversial Leo DeRocher, the most amoral man in baseball, when when you look back from the standpoint uh, of a reporter, a trained reporter, rather than the starry-eyed 14-year-old fan that I was at the time, 
when you look back at a reporter that knows how a baseball organization is supposed to operate, when you look back from a, as a historian and you talk to people, you realize the Cubs just didn't have what it took. But why they stuck with the fans is twofold. The team had four Hall of Famers in the lineup. Uh, Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, playing first base, Ron Sano at third, Billy Williams in left, and the franchise's all-time starting pitcher, Fergie Jenkins, who asked me in 2017 to write a book with them for the 50th anniversary of the 1969 Cubs. That's the title of the book, The 1969 Cubs. And uh, we were able to really go deeper into what made that team so popular and why it didn't win. Plus, unlike in Portland, where you grew up, where you had to watch baseball from afar until mm-hmm. the cable era, uh, afar physically, but but certainly uh, before cable, all you had was the NBC game of the week coming in uh, on Saturdays. You had more games on TV on WGN uh, than any other franchise for the 1969 Cubs, and it was the second time, the second year, that 60-something road games were put on so we're watching from distant outposts like Dodger Stadium and Candlestick Park and the first year at Jack Murphy Stadium in, in San, uh, San Diego. We're watching this miracle of baseball from 2,000 miles away and sometimes late at night. Um, and it was such a treat. And if you can recall from your childhood, it was a four or five or six channel universe universe in the big cities and much smaller in the small towns. Some places still only had two or three channels. So a Cubs telecast on TV was a big, big, big deal. And it got to the point where people would call the Chicago Tribune scoreboard or Chicago Tribune sports department when a Cubs telecast was uh, not featured that day, when a game was not televised, a road game was not televised. WGN played a huge factor in the growth of popularity expanding its, its schedule just as the this team of four Hall of Famers uh, revved up to contender status. George, you were talking about a hard-throwing right-hander who was uh, a Hall of Famer in Fergie Jenkins, but uh, he also was a guy that was a little bit bigger than your normal player. You know, now if you look weight-wise back then in comparison to what it is now, it's a little bit different, but still at 6'5", 210, Fergie was a big man. Not only a big man, not all pitchers were 6'5". Now every, uh, almost every pitcher is 6'5". Fergie played all the sports growing up in Chatham, Ontario, 60 miles outside Detroit. Uh, he was a basketball player, and in the off-seasons prior to 1969, earned as much money as he did with baseball playing for the Harlem Globetrotters. He could dunk the ball, which, you know, 6'5 players didn't often dunk the ball in 1969. Uh, he played football, and he was a defenseman in hockey. So he was an extremely athletic man, a great pitcher, and was held back maybe a year by the Phillies. He was really, really a good pitcher in the minors. And to this day, uh, Fergie, we talked about that 1964 Phillies collapse. Fergie felt that if they had brought him up from Little Rock, he could have helped them and maybe helped stave off that collapse. But the Phillies didn't bring him up for another year. And uh was one of the greatest trades in Cubs history because, in essence, he was a throw-in 
in uh, April 1966, about three weeks into the season, because the Cubs' main target was center fielder Adolfo Phillips, and Fergie was the second guy in the trade. You know, one of the things that I look at Fergie Jenkins that, uh, you know, flashes back from my childhood is the fact that we share the same birthday, December 13th. He was uh, wow. yeah, a couple weeks ahead of me, a couple years, okay. But, uh, you know, Fergie was definitely one of my favorites for that reason. But when you look at the rest of the Cubs roster, and, you know, we can even look at the salaries. None of them made over $100,000. I mean, Ron Santo and Billy Williams, you know, they were eighty-five to seventy, seventy-five dollars to $85,000 a year. And even Ernie Banks, who was a, a legend and remains a legend, I'm sure, not only in Chicago but also in baseball lore, was making only $60,000 a year. Well, how did that happen? I'm gonna. I mean, we could we could devote the entire show to just the salary yes. issue and the racial angle with the Cubs. But how did Ernie Banks, the MVP, two-time MVP of the National League, 1958-59, end up being passed up by uh, Ron Sano in salary when Ron just signed with the Cubs in 1959, partially because he saw Ernie Banks on the game of the week on uh, Channel Five in Seattle. I mean, this or, 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 or whatever channels mm-hmm. were taking it. NBC, CBS did concurrent game of the week's Channel Seven in Seattle. So Ron Sano passed up Ernie Banks in salary. Ernie had a seven-year head start on him. How does that happen? But again, that's a separate issue. It's part of the dark side of Cubs history. And uh, but I will tell you this: whether you're making sixty, sixty-five thousand, or eighty-five thousand a year. That was a very, very, very good salary when the average middle class salary was about fifteen thousand or ten to fifteen thousand. Don Young, the Cubs rookie center fielder, an accidental center center fielder, only playing because Adolfo Phillips broke his hand in spring training, told me he was making twelve thousand dollars and didn't cash any of his checks. Somehow he lived on barter and meal money. I don't know how he pulled that off, but he said he didn't live on his twelve thousand dollars. Well, we're speaking with George Castle, and he is a, a legend in Chicago, but a legend in baseball. He's written many books and uh, uh, been a radio show, talk show host himself. And uh, George, one of the things that is a favorite position of mine is catcher. And uh, you guys had, at that time, what started to become the general type catchers, the ones that really took care of their staffs really well, and Randy Hundley indeed did that. He was a leader. He was a an assistant manager on the field. Uh, Rich Nye, the Cubs lefty, who was a veterinarian in the Chicago area, semi-retired veterinarian of exotic animals such as birds and lizards and rabbits and things like that, um, he remembers that he would throw a pitch to the plate, and if Randy was displeased by that, Randy might fire it back to the mound faster than it came in. But the interesting thing about Randy... He was so intense, he refused to come out of the lineup to his and the Cubs' detriment. In 1968, the year before what we're talking about, he set the major league record will probably never be broken of 160 games caught. Um, The previous year, 1967, the Cubs played four consecutive doubleheaders over the Labor Day weekend, Friday through Monday. And I was at the Monday doubleheader against the Dodgers. Yeah, now that's – I'm – the older FAR, uh, older parte, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, Rich and I pitched that first game. But Randy Hunley started seven out of those eight games and was double-switched into the game in the eighth game. That He 
to his detriment, did not take any rests. Leo DeRocher would not take him out of the lineup. And it hurt him in the end because uh, he had nothing left at the end of the season, particularly after he was hospitalized for a finger infection and came back too fast. Things that we take for granted, certain standards of health and of players playing uh, a certain number of games, we take for granted, uh, were not observed in 1969. And uh, when we look back at it, we say this is pretty barbaric. But at that time, it was considered an act of macho manliness, whatever you want to call it. And so Randy Hunley caught 151 games in 1969, and when he came back from this finger injury, uh, he had lost some weight in the hospital. He didn't, you know, work his way back into the lineup. He didn't go to the minor leagues for a couple of games rehab. And he lost weight and uh, lost production, and he was of no use to the Cubs the rest of the season. This injury was in mid-August of 1969, and one of the main reasons why they fell apart because he was the number six hitter in the lineup, and at the time of his uh, hospitalization, he was third on the Cubs and homers right after Ernie Banks. You know, one of the other things, too, we look at is, you know, you've got between 151 games and 160 games by, you know, guys like Hundley and Banks and Santo and Kessinger and Williams. Uh, most of those either all-stars or, or also Hall of Famers. That's a lot of games, but I think a lot of people nowadays forget, especially with the air-conditioned ballparks and many night games, that uh, Wrigley Field at that time did not have any lights. Not only that, you're battling the humidity, and everybody wore wool uniforms. And consider this. You're in the Pacific time zone, so you're two hours behind Chicago. Mm -hmm. When the Cubs would play, they would basically have a 9-to-5 job at home. Billy Williams told me he was in bed by 10 p.m. at night. He took good care of himself because he played 1,117 consecutive games. He was honored in a doubleheader on June 29, 1969. I watched it on TV for breaking Stan Musial's consecutive games played record in the National League. He eventually uh, he played all 162 games that year. There was a time where he fouled the ball off of his instep, and Leo DeRocher got him to the plate. Uh, as a pinch hitter to keep that streak going in advance of this special uh, day that he had where the Cubs swept the Cardinals. Jenkins beat it, beat Bob Gibson in the first game. When the Cubs played at home, they're playing nine to five. They're like office workers. When they went on the road, the majority of weekday games were night games in 1969. So now you have to change your body clock to a night entertainer type. And it made it worse when you'd make your three trips or two trips, I should say, at that time to the West Coast. So now you're flying from Chicago where you played a whole week or more than a week, nine to five. You're going to bed at 10, 10, 11 o'clock central time. Now you're seeing your first pitch uh, maybe on a Monday night in L.A. or San Francisco or San Diego at 10 p.m. according to your body clock. So. By going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, in addition to the heat and humidity of day games in those wool uniforms and poor facilities, they had a locker room that was smaller than many high school locker rooms. Uh, you're suffering what they call shift work disorder. Mm -hmm. And the Cubs did this for six months. 
And an athlete's body is a finely tuned machine. You take, you know, anything uh, away from that, and in the in September it can cost you. So, um, uh, Phil Phil Wrigley's refusal to install lights after he originally planned to do it in 1942 um, uh, probably cost the Cubs a couple of first place finishes from 1969 uh, through the early 1970s and possibly later. George, let's talk about the Chicago Cubs and what they were not. And that was a small ball team. And I don't mean size. I mean just using the small ball. It looks like Kessinger only had 11 stolen bases. The rest of the uh, remaining seven guys in the starting lineup, 15 stolen bases, only four on the bench. This was a team that hit the ball around and hit it around real hard and real well as well. Here's where the Lou Brock trade of 1964 really kicked in to hurt them. Even though Don Kessinger had his best offensive season in 1969 and was a a pretty capable leadoff man, he scored over 100 runs and hit 300 until September. He was really more of a seven or eight hitter, which is the prototypical shortstop of the time, maybe a two hitter. uh, But most of the Cubs say they could have used Lou Brock as a leadoff man in 1969 and the game had started to move towards uh, a faster steel oriented thing you you didn't have the astroturf fields yet taking over the the astrodome was the only astrodome covered field in the national league at the time st louis still didn't have an astrodome field in in a four-year-old bush stadium at this point but brock's trade really came back to haunt him because they could have used a speedy leadoff man uh, and they, and the earlier management had improperly used Brock. They were afraid to take the bat, the bats out of Billy Williams and Ron Santos' hands, even though Maury Wills had already d- demonstrated the value of having a base dealer in front of the likes of Tommy Davis and Frank Howard, uh, who both drove in at least 119 runs in 1962 while Wills stole 106 bases. So, uh, without a certified base dealer, uh, Leo DeRocher. Uh, did not want to run these guys, and of course, hurt even more when DeRocher got to be increasingly senile as a manager and increasingly conservative and safety first. That was not the way Leo's reputation was amassed as a manager back with the old Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants. George, uh, you did uh, speak a little bit and briefly about Lou Brock and that also uh, makes me reflect upon Don, uh, Glenn Beckert, who we lost earlier in the year. But uh, these last four or five weeks have seen five of the uh, the great ones, along with uh, Glenn back in, I believe it was March, uh, passing. And, of course, that's something that we're all going to be facing at one time. But can you ever remember uh, a great five like that to, uh, uh, to call it a, a day uh, as close to each other as they did? Yeah, I mean, it just shows you that, uh, as Harry Carey says, uh, uh, life changes, but the game uh, game moves on. And uh, uh, to lose every everybody that they have that they have is very shocking. And this is the necrology that I keep with the 1969 Cubs, where I believe 18 members of that team have passed already. Mm. So, with each passing goes one more chunk of our childhood and it reminds us that time doesn't wait for us teenage fans from 1969 that uh, the bell will toll for thee at, uh, at one point so that you just have to uh, enjoy the memories of that team 
the personalities and, and the fact that uh, in their retirement, I got to know almost all of them and they were great guys and you could sit there all day and all night and hear stories. And some of those stories you cannot reprint uh, in any kind of media. They are so ribald, but that's the way many baseball stories are. They're, they're gut splitting. They're so hilarious, uh, but you don't dare publish them. Uh, to protect the guilty. George, definitely appreciate you spending some time with us here on Old Fart Sports. And uh, from one old farte to another, thank you so much for your time. Yes, uh, the older farte, thanks you very, very much. And uh, think about all the good things that happened way back in the past in this dark year. Uh, we It lights up when we remember all these great players and great memories that we have. And it it gets us through the darkness, so to speak. Indeed it does, and I appreciate you sharing some of the uh, happy times with us uh, this afternoon, and we'll uh, continue to look down the road toward the east for those memories again. So I appreciate it, George. All righty, back we are indeed. Another week, another wonderful week of sports, Ow. and it's old fart sports. Hey, hey, hey. Kevin Hurst, along with <laughs> P. Huff and hey, Roar Dog. How we doing, Jets? Fantastic. Doing good, right. good, good. You know, we've been uh, reveling in the glory of the 1969 uh, swoon of the Cubs to the New York Mets, and mm-hmm. we're going to take an analytical look. We're going to take an analytical look through the eyes of Jackson Thomas, who is uh, coming to us from Chapman University, and he's going to be heading off next year to Cape Cod University. So Cape Cod University, no, but Cape Cod Baseball. So uh, we're going to take a break uh, when we're done, but until then, let's go out to the phone lines and talk to Jackson Thomas. What's up, JT? How you doing, bud? What's up? How are all you guys doing? Doing, hey, man. What's up, man? Hey, we were just uh, talking about your adventures next year where you're going to go off to the Cape Cod League and uh, kind of do your analytical thing then. So uh, we're going to be leaning on you for a little expertise of analytics themselves about the 1969 Swoon of the Cubs to the New York Mets. So uh, we're just going to fire away with some questions. Well, I'll go first. There I you guess. go. Roar dogs up. Hey, Jackson. So, yeah. Um, what call, do you have a couple stats you think that led to the Mets taking over the Cubs in the 69 World Series? Yeah, I do. I have a couple of stats that mainly they focus on the stretch run for the 1969 season from when the about the time frame the Mets overtook the Cubs. So starting back from the incident of Don Young in New York, who's pinned as the scapegoat for the Cubs' collapse. Right. From that point on to the rest of the season – the Cubs had a negative five run differential, while the wow. Mets had a plus fifty-five run differential. Wow! Oh my God! That's dramatic. And then, dramatic, and then also to go along with those run differentials, the Cubs were playing sub five hundred ball the rest of the year with a five hundred and four winning percentage, while the Mets were dominating with a five hundred forty-two winning percentage. So those two are some broad stats to showcase how the team progressed from the rest of the season from that one incident forward. 
We're talking with Jackson Thomas, one of our, uh, well, he's a former colleague with us, and uh, he's also an analytical expert. So we're going to talk a bit uh, about the analytics. You were talking about Don Young, and Don Young, of course, the center fielder that came over. Uh, we were just talking with George Castle about him. But, you know, talk to us a little bit about what you thought the factor was with the weather. Right on, yeah, so the weather. So I have some weather numbers for September so not so much the July from when the incident happened, but September was the most drastic month for the two teams in terms of the Cubs playing their worst baseball of the year and the Mets playing their best baseball of the year. Mm-hmm. So humidity. And I know, Kev, you think humidity is a very, very big factor in how the player rests, player health, affected by player health, and how the team moves forward. So the average humidity in Chicago in the month of September is 70% daily, while in New York – it ranges from 34 to 11%. So it's almost wow. double the humidity in Chicago. Balls are flying, leaving the park. Exactly. And New York played more home games in the month of September than Chicago did. So they have to deal with those worse weather conditions and with less. Uh, their pitching was able to dominate and not have to worry about the weather dictating whether they get up a home run or not. Do you think a lot of the success for the Mets had to do with the youth of their pitching staff? I believe that's a part of it. There isn't too big of a difference between the Mets and the Cubs pitching mm-hmm. staff age. They both sort of starting pitchers only because those are the guys still in the bulk of the innings. The Mets are averaging out 26 years, and the Cubs are averaging just below 26 years. Wow. So they're both the Pretty same. Pretty close. Yeah. <clears throat> young but guns, also, for sure. Yeah, young guns. But also the de facto was that the Mets were led by Tom Seaver, who ended up winning the Cy Young. One of the things that I was just sharing with uh, with my colleagues here was the fact that there was one guy who got his only World Series win for the New York Mets, and he got it in relief, and that was Nolan Ryan. Nolan, that was Nolan Ryan's only World Series win? Yeah. You know, you figure wow. his glorious career, as long as he pitched, he never got a chance to, to do much other than strike people out and uh, knock the crop out of uh, Robin Ventura giving him <laughs> noogies. But uh, other than that, it was kind of like, you know, when you think of a legendary player like that, you would have thought he had a, a number of opportunities, but Nolan Ryan only one World Series victory. Was that only in one World Series appearance, or yeah. was he like well, Clayton Kershaw and not able to? No, I don't think he. No, I don't think he was a Superman like Clayton Kershaw is, where he gets to play every other year, every year. But uh, Nolan Ryan, yeah, he was. Uh, he was well. As a matter of fact, if you're a sports card collector at all, I think you can look at Nolan Ryan on one side and Jerry Kuzman on the other, who was another guy on that staff. So with uh, with Seaver and Kuzman and Nolan Ryan, they were stacked loaded and they're able to dominate down the stretch run especially in september so i think that's when analytically the cubs faltered with their pitching staff in september and part of that is due to the humidity and having to deal with the long ball because the cubs pitchers gave up just under five runs per game in september while the mets gave up 2.3 runs per game in september which is huge Hmm. that's crazy man uh now, Jackson, I'm going to ask you a question. It might be a little bit tough. What I want you to, if you can, pick out what is the major factor that led to New York being able to outplay and outlast Chicago and Baltimore. Uh, I believe that's, I think that's clubhouse leadership. Mm. Because you can't say it's the schedule and they had a lighter schedule because the reality is that the Mets played more ball in September than the Cubs. And the Mets played five doubleheaders in the month of September with two of those four of those being back-to-back. So I think it goes down to clubhouse leadership 
and their manager, Gil Hodges, is the most use- is more useful than Leo DeRocher. So I think that he was able to provide more of like a he's able to relate more to the players and not mm-hmm. be as a pissed task handler as you guys have said before mm-hmm. and able to really like push through the grind for the Mets. So there's no numbers that favor the Mets over the Cubs for schedule benefits and anything in September. So the reality is that's to come down to the team makeup and the clubhouse leadership that the Mets had. Probably more relatability with the age factor because Leo was quite old at that time. As a matter of fact, if memory serves me right, I wasn't born at that time, but in 1954, I think the shot heard around the world by Bobby Thompson. Uh, I think Louis the lip was Leo the lip at that time was uh, a third base coach or maybe the manager of the 54 Giants. So uh, that's a guy that was around for a long time, whereas I think Hodges was only like 43 years of age, so he might have had more of a, a relationship with the younger younger players. Mm-hmm. And without a doubt, because you can see these managing tactics apply to modern-day time in any sport, is that if no matter how when you start, if you have that much experience, if you don't adapt, and change your managing style and come up with the new and the younger managers and be able to evolve as a manager, you're going to have problems. You see that nowadays, too, across any sport. So that's where Leo DeRocher was so stubborn with everything, and even though he had a very decorated upbringing into managing, he wasn't able to fully adapt and do what Gil Hodges did. You know, one of the things, too, is the the Baltimore Orioles who were uh... – a 109 win or 108 win but you also had Earl Weaver who was uh, at that point a younger manager so you've got two younger managers and I might be throwing you a bit of a curveball here but do you see any relationship of why those Mets were able to do what they did to the Orioles despite both both of those two teams having younger managers well I believe when you think about it all in the postseason baseball it's all about who's hot. So with the Mets coming into postseason hot, they might have been able to maintain the momentum that Hodges built up. But Mm -hmm. overall with younger managers, maybe Earl Weaver just wasn't as prepared for the postseason. Did Earl Weaver play in the major leagues, Kev, or was he just a coach and through? No, he was just pretty much a a manager type. Uh, As far as my knowledge, he might have played a little minor league ball, but uh, never, never in the major leagues. And then maybe you look at it like that, and maybe because Gil Hodges was a Good former point. player, Good point. postseason experience, and being able to push through that. So that might have been the separating factor between uh-huh. those two that it's apparent. You know, the, one of the other things, too, is uh, I was sharing with our guest that was on uh, just a little bit ago, George Castle, and you look at the the little generals, if you will, of the two different catchers. You've got Jerry Grody of the uh, New York Mets along with Randy Hundley of the Cubs. And one of the things that I came away impressed, particularly about reviewing it, was how well Jerry Grody was able to handle that young staff and really get the most out of them. Uh, is that kind of the way you see it as well, or do you have a different opinion of that? I believe both of them overall were able to lead a staff to similar success amounts because when you look at some of the prime pitching numbers between runs, strikeouts, and walks, mm-hmm. the Cubs, so the Cubs pitching staff led by, led by Randy Hudley, so they were fourth in the National League in runs given up, third in strikeouts, and fourth in walks. While the Mets, led by Jerry Grody, he was able to push that young pitching staff far. 
they were second in runs allowed, fourth in strikeouts, and sixth in walks. So both staffs were nearly identical. And if Jerry Grody really pushed that young staff, then maybe you underestimate his value and say that he was able to overachieve with the performance of the young staff relative to the Cubs. Awesome. Excellent breakdown of that. Hey, JT, we definitely appreciate you spending some time with us. Congratulations on the new endeavor. And uh, keep putting those numbers together for the people that uh, can use them like ourselves and any coaching staff you work for in the future. So excellent job. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Jackson Thomas, folks, he is – well, an analytical expert. So, yeah. guys, there you go. There's Thanks, the Jackson, numbers. Man. Good hearing from you. Thank you very much for you having betcha. me. See you soon. So we're reviewing my week five picks. I had five games in a five-way parlay. New Orleans at Los Angeles. New Orleans favored by minus eight. I said take them. I was wrong. Uh, New Orleans won 30-27. Yeah, that's the right noise. But you know what? Indy versus Cleveland. Indy was favored by two points. I said you you better take Cleveland at plus two. What did Cleveland do? Win the game 32-23. to 23. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the Los Angeles Rams. They were favored uh, by seven and a half points. And I said, you know what? I'll still take it. What did they do? They won 30-10. to 10. Hell yeah. That's right. Seattle. Minus seven against Minnesota. And what did I say? I said, this is going to be a great game. Seattle's going to find a way. It's going to be entertaining. Come down to the end. They're going to find a way to win, but they're not going to cover the spread. Take Minnesota on the spread. Seattle wins the game 27 to 26 in the last seconds. Ring the bells. It's Easter. You're right. (laughs) Well, maybe you're not, but ring them. Uh, And then the Cowboys favored. Ouch. By nine and a half points. Ouch is right. Uh, Kevin, before the game, gave Dak a call, and he said, you know what, Dak, just go out there and break a leg. What happened? Exactly that. Uh, Cowboys ended up winning the game 37-34, to but they didn't cover the spread like I thought that they would. And now they're playing with a quarterback who's red on the head like the of a dog. That's right. That's exactly right. The old red rocket, Andy Dalton. But, uh... One thing I was proud of, my five-way parlay for week five. You guys better start listening to these ones. Take them on the money line. What did I say? Los Angeles Rams, Cowboys, New Orleans Saints, Baltimore, and Arizona. And you know what? They all went through. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That would be a six-gun shooter with only three bullets. There you go. Well, uh, we're heading into week six here in the NFL. Doesn't and, it go uh, by? Is there anything that goes by quicker than the NFL season? Or it's crazy, isn't what it? Is it feels oh, like it just man. started last Sunday, two man. Sundays ago. All of a sudden, here we are, week six. But uh, it's been a hell of a season, entertaining uh, to say the least. And I think we got some good ones on the docket for uh, this Sunday and and Monday. Um, like you said, the one I'm really looking at. Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Wait, the Browns are playing this weekend? You're damn right, buddy. Oh, you smokes. I can't wait. I'm about ready. I don't fill my pants. Oh, holy yeah. smokes. Yeah, well, fill them up, buddy, because <laughs> this one is going to have you on the edge of your seat. I know it. And you know it as well. This is, this is one of the 
biggest rivalries in all of NFL football. I mean, it really is. When you're as big as I, you kind of fall to the front of your seat anyway. So, sure. but you know what the heck. Yeah. So, uh, getting into it here, Cleveland is playing at Pittsburgh this week. Uh, that could be a factor. But nonetheless, uh, I, I don't think it's uh, going to be packed with fans. So, actually, I know it's not going to be packed with fans. Uh, but the spread we got right now is Pittsburgh minus three and a half. Imagine that, Kevin. Uh, the money line with with Pittsburgh at minus 200 and the over-under, meaning uh, how many points is mm-hmm. expected to be scored in the game, is at 51 points. What I would do amongst those three is pick Cleveland at plus three and a half. I don't know, Kev. I don't know if they're going to win. I really don't. But uh, if they lose, it's not going to be by more than three points. So I, li- I like Cleveland at plus three and a half there. And you know what? I think they might shock people and win that one. Well, if I was Jackson Thomas, I'd throw some numbers at you. But I'm not, so I won't. Yeah, don't. Thanks. <laughs> uh, moving on to number two. We got uh, Chicago playing at Carolina. Dump Bears. Yeah, dump Bears. Uh, Carolina has actually, like... Pretty darn good over these last couple of weeks. The first few weeks is kind of like, eh, these guys are just kind of at the bottom there, you know, not really expecting to see anything. But my guy, Teddy B, Two Glove Teddy, he's uh, he's doing well. And uh, as we said last week, as a, one of our fantasy guys to watch, Robbie Anderson, yeah. you and I had a hell of a game. Uh, so the I other just, thing is Coach Rule's not spitting all over himself. It's actually hitting the ground. Yeah, it's nice to see that because when you, when he's got a drip of, <laughs> drip of freaking uh, spit going down his belly, nobody wants to see that. Shout out to uh, Baylor University. But I think... The Ch- other Bears. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think Chicago's going to actually win this game. Um Carolina is favored at minus two and a half, meaning they're expected to win by two and a half points, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But uh, if you think they're going to win by three, you should take that. But I don't. I think the right move here is to take Chicago at plus two and a half on on the spread. And uh, moving on. Now, uh, oh, before, oh, let me, let me order. Yeah. You threw out these numbers because you legitimately play. Oh, I, I play. You play. Yeah. You play to win? Well, you I know, don't play to lose. I'll tell you that, Rory. Uh, <laughs> shout out to uh, Rory Dog. You ever tease him? Do I ever tease yeah, him? Yeah. You ever go? What the hell did you do that for, you bonehead? Uh, but yeah, moving on. Another fantastic game that I'm excited about this week is Green Bay at Tampa Bay. Yes, sir. A, a couple of wily vets in the quarterback position. The same with, conference now. That's right. That's right. And um, it's going to be another close one. It's going to be a barn burner. Right now we got Green Bay favored on the spread at minus 2.5. The money line minus 133 for Green Bay and the over-under sitting at 54 points. What I would do, I'd take Green Bay at minus 2.5. I, 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 yeah. one, one of the other things, too, is Chris Berman always used to call it the Battle of the Bays mm-hmm. or the Bay of Pigs, whichever. The Bay of Pigs, I like that yeah, one better. Yeah. But, yeah, I think Green Bay is going to find a way to win this one. Tampa Bay, uh, looking all right. little shaky. Yeah, right over there, Kev. Jesus Christ. I didn't fall, but the headphones did. Yeah. You know, they call them them headphones for a reason there, Kev. Well, I got excited. It's all this hair and the hat and everything else, you know. My head was spinning. Some people says it spins all the time. Anyway. 
Anyway, yeah. Uh, Green Bay, I think, is going to win that game by at least three points, and I would take him on the spread at minus two and a half. Uh, New Jersey. Uh, New let me, Jersey. Let me, let me back up. The New York Jets. Playing I was going to say, you well be the Jersey Trump? Jets. <laughs> Donald Trump used to own a New Jersey football team. All right. Well, we'll move on from that. The Please. New York Jets are Quite playing fun. at Miami this week. Uh, big spread on this one. Miami favored by minus 9.5, which actually, even though it says minus, it means they're expected to win by 9.5 or more. Um, minus 400 on the money line. Over under sitting at 47.5. I think it's going to happen. I'm taking the over on that wow. one. I think Miami's going to score a lot of points. And you know what? Uh, the Jets, well, we'll give them... 17, 21, something like that. They got Joe Flacco now uh, playing quarterback. So that Joe Flacco guy? Yeah. I wasn't he champ. A, he was a hand from Delaware, I think. Delaware. We don't we don't Smell acknowledge away. any Baltimore but, team ever uh, winning the Super Bowl. Doesn't happen. It was the Browns team before that. Anyway. Okay, it's sure. always about the Browns. Of course, shouldn't it be? Okay. Well over forty seven and a half points, I like it and I would take it. Los Angeles Rams moving on to game number five. They're playing at San Francisco this week. San Francisco not looking so good. Jimmy G. Jimmy and G. Let me tell you what, Jimmy I've said, who? I've said, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've, I've said it since, you know, everybody's hyping him up when he left New England. He's not the guy. He's no. just not the guy. <laughs> Originally, I was going to say that I would take the Los Angeles Rams at minus three and a half. And, uh... That's not a bad call, but the money line is at minus 189 for the Los Angeles Rams. This is expected to be a close game. Could be, but the Rams are going to win this game. I really feel it. And so I would take the Rams on the money line at minus 189. That's still pretty darn good odds for you to make some money. Um, and those are my five games for week six. You know, and another thing good. is finally the Rams are starting to bring back to life their three-headed monster of running backs. Yes. So with the... Uh, you know, everything is going on there, and Cam Akers now getting a shot. Uh, but they also have a three-headed monster at wide receiver. Yeah. And, and then you throw in Tyler Higby. I mean, you know, Goff's got, you know, they've got some stuff going on it's there. It's a scary offense. Yeah. I, I really don't care who they got. Uh, I love I love McVay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you want me to go with my five players to watch on fantasy, I Please. can do that as well. Please. Okay. Well, number one, and as always, this is in no particular order. I'm going to go with James Robinson, running back for the Jacksonville Jaguars. People might look at me a little funny, but they're They always do. All right, Rory. I'll see you later, pal. But uh, they're playing Detroit, and Detroit's giving up. Rory says not a fucking help it. (laughs) Anything is possible, and that's why I think James Robinson's going to have a good game this week. They're playing Detroit, 100-plus rushing yards every single week so far this this season. Uh, Who else are going to give the ball to, though? you got to remember that. Yeah, no. Kevin, look, I've really I've looked into this, man. He they, they're James, not a team that has two running backs, like a team that I follow. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the guy can even be hurt, and they still want to give him the ball. Yeah, man, the Browns are just so awesome. But well, uh, yeah. James Robinson had 13 carries and five receptions on eight targets last week. Did you hear the cynicism coming out of his mouth then? No. I he was, he was kind of like, hmm, yeah. giving you props. Your team's yeah, good. Yeah, well... 
Anyways, James Robinson, if you don't have him and he's available, I'd pick him up. Number two, we're going with another running back, David Johnson. Running back for the Houston Texans, who picked up their first week last uh, or their first win last week. Uh, 96 rushing yards in the game last week against Jacksonville. And Tennessee, that's who they're playing. They gave up 181 yards to what? Dalvin Cook. Did you know that? Dalvin. Was yeah. that before or after Matson came in after he was hurt? That was the week before, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a week before. It was also before everybody on Tennessee got COVID. But you know what? That's all right. Hey, they didn't look very COVID last night. No. But we don't. Well, we'll move right along. Yeah. Uh, Please. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Johnson, he's gonna get his touches. That's all. Is this all I the know. Johnson or the Johnson? It's the Johnson. The Johnson. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, number three. Justin Jefferson coming out of LSU, wide receiver for Minnesota. Has not gotten many touches last week, but he did, or, or this year, but he did last week. I'll tell you that. Atlanta, uh, that's who they're playing. They've had seven receivers with 90-plus yards against them in five weeks. Uh, really, this is more of a hunch, I'll be honest with you, but I like Justin Jefferson this week. And another guy I like at the wide receiver position is T.Y. Hilton. Uh, wide receiver for Indianapolis hasn't had that great of a year to be honest mm, with you. Look who's throwing a little to bit him. quiet. It's time to call Andrew yeah, Luck. He's uh, yeah, he, what's Luck doing? How's their luck going? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Andrew Luck left. Is there a bigger piss pot? Like you know, we use the word the piss pot around here a lot. Is there a bigger piss pot in the NFL than Philip Rivers? I think the biggest thing is he's got 25 kids. It's a lot to manage at home, you know? <laughs> I would hate to go to his house and do the census. It'd be hard to figure out. Yeah, or the laundry. Jeez, I'm that. telling you, Mrs. Rivers is busy all week long. <laughs> yeah, that's a fact. But anyway, uh, they're playing Cincy, who's got an average secondary at best. And, and a uh, horrible offensive line for that poor kid. No, uh, it's... it's it's been tough. What do you take eight sacks last week? I think, something like that. It's insane. But uh, T.Y. Hilton last week, six of ten targets. Uh, I think he's going to get a lot more targets. Well, maybe not a lot more targets, but he's going to get that many targets, and he's going to have a good game. And my last one, Rory, you might have an interest in this one. The stash, Gardner Minshew. I think he's going to have an all right week. I'm not going to say he's going to go off, but listen to this, you guys. Through five weeks in the NFL, Gardner Minshew has a quarterback rating of 101.2 with a 72% completion percentage. Did you know that? That's pretty good. Well, it's not and bad. they're playing yeah. the Lions. So, I mean, yeah. exactly. come on now. See what the rocket scientist does against them. And I'll give you one more thing about the Lions. No quarterback this year has had less than 240 yards and two touchdowns against them. So, I expect the stash, the Mississippi stash, to come out. Have a good game, and uh, if you don't have him, he can get you some points this week. I'll leave you with this for anybody that wants to make some money. Hit a five-way parlay on the money line. Miami, Kansas City, New England, Indy, and Baltimore. You're welcome, you guys. <laughs> You're welcome. What do you think, Roar? We'll have to see. He was pretty good last week, so I'd, I'd listen to him if I were you. For sure. I think I will listen to him, and I'll put the money right where his mouth was, on the right side of the ledger. Because on the left side, that means you're a loser. Well, it's been real. It's been fun. That's right. It's been real fun. You got it. Knee to the head, knee to the groin, knee to the head, knee to the groin. Haymaker, haymaker, headbutt.
That's back to a legendary friend of mine who we're going to see if we can't get him on Old Fart Sports with us as well. Because, uh, well, he never will be an old fart and never was. So, hmm. But uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, make sure you listen next week because we're going to be talking with the man, the myth, the legend, often imitated. Although some people think he imitates people, but uh, he's not. He just has a lot of mannerisms just like Vin Scully, and that's Mike Parker of Oregon State Sports. Can't wait for that. I know you can't because you're a big beeve at heart and a big beeve in the, you know, you have been there, you've done that, and uh, we're looking forward to Mike Parker being with us next week on Old Fart Sports. We appreciate you guys spending your time with us, and uh, it's been a glorious day. And it's always a glorious day when you're an old fart like I am and a young wet one like my two lads here. That's right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been a Podland Productions production. Recorded at Downstairs Studio in Portland, Oregon. For more information on Podland and for more Podland podcasts, go to podland.productions. While you're there, subscribe to the email newsletter for sneak peeks, giveaways, and more. Thanks for listening. Bottling Productions. <laughs>